0: When these major events in your life, whether it's cancer or the loss of someone, a major loss in your life helps you reset your intentions. And it might be horribly painful, but if you can have the confidence that on the other side of that pain and struggle is is rebirth, is reinvention, And reinvention can be scary, but reinvention is where the magic is.
1: In this episode, meet Beth Brode, a pioneer producer who put music videos on the map, beginning with Prince's Little Red Corvette. She is a storyteller, has a master's in the art of becoming, and throughout the various stages of work and life, saw the lessons in each experience. She was never afraid to make a U-turn that led to something beautiful. Her voice is like butter, her life full and rich. A special bonus banter towards the end reveals the nature of some of the world's biggest musicians. Enjoy the listen. Welcome to About Your Mother, where your story begins. It's such an honor to have you, and I can't thank Amy Ferris enough for introducing us. Oh, thank you. I'm really happy to be here. It's just an honor. We've gotten to know each other, and I like to start at the beginning, and I was reading your keynote that you wrote for Story Summit, which is just fabulous. And I'm really inspired by the fact that there you've had many life-changing moments, but one of your initial life-changing moments was going to Europe, and that was inspired by your parents. So we can, can we start there about your mother and the okay. influence that she had on this trip that you took that kind of changed the course of your life? So
0: my mother was loved art, and she loved theater. And she was determined the, or my earlier years when I was in in, uh, high school and middle school, she took my father and dragged him all over the world. Every museum, every city, every cafe, everything. I mean, she was, she wanted to see the world and she wanted to see it with him. And they went and, you know, she was such a cultured and bright woman. Her dream for me was for me to go. Okay. Her dream was I'm going to give you every cafe. I'm going to give you every street. I'm going to give you every museum, every site that you need to see. I, you know, she just had it all organized for me to go and to see the world. She wanted me to be a worldly and sophisticated woman. So that was my, that was my college graduation gift was a trip to Europe. I had a girlfriend in college and she lived in St. Louis and we decided that we were going to go to Europe together for like two or three months, however long we were going to go. And I was, I was so excited. This was like the trip I had waited for my whole life. And my mother was so thrilled and they took me to the airport and my mother cried. She, she, she just stood there at the gate and she was so happy that her little girl was going to see the world. You know, I knew and I knew exactly where to go. I knew, you know, even though I'd never been to Europe, I, I, I had sort of a roadmap that she gave me. So we get to London and this girl's boyfriend showed up. That really pissed me off. <laughs> Unbeknownst to you, he just shows up. Uh, he just shows up. So now Ugh. my adventure with my girlfriend, okay, that yeah. was supposed to be like going out, having fun, meeting you know international guys, you know the whole thing that we had planned. She basically set me up so that her parents would think she was traveling Europe with a girl. Oh I wow! Mean, yeah, with a girl, right? So yeah. So guy shows up and now the three of us are in a hotel room and I'm like, I'm not doing this. I can't do this. So I left them and I went out and took a walk and I sat in a cafe and I thought to myself, you can either go home and start again or you can take your roadmap from your mother and your Traveler's checks and your credit card from your mother and father and um, go it alone. And that was a moment that I just had to find the strength and bravery in me to say, "Okay, I don't. We were in London, so you you speak the language. But for all the other places that we were going to go, I mean, I didn't speak the language. I didn't speak. I spoke a little bit of French. But I just decided I'm going to do this. And I called home and my mother's like, no, 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 no. You come home right now. Mm -mm. You can always go back. I said, I can't do that. I've waited my whole life for this. So I decided to go it alone and I had the most incredible adventure. I traveled all over Europe, did all the things I wanted to do, went to all the places I wanted to go. Had little romances and fun and found myself at the end of three months, you know, on the Greek islands, on the island of Mykonos. And I really thought to myself after those three months of just complete freedom and adventure, I I thought, you know what? There isn't anything in the world that I can't do. There just is nothing that I can't accomplish because I'm very brave right now. Mm-hmm. And it was a, it was a real game changer for me to make that decision to travel alone and make the best out of something I'd look forward to for so long.
1: That's amazing. How else did your mom, um, and you refer to her as the goddess of... Island Park. Island Park, yes. <laughs> Having lived in Chicago, Highland Park, the goddess of Highland Park. How else did she shape or influence your life?
0: My mother was like movie star gorgeous. She was absolutely beautiful. And she was social and really bright. She was very ambitious, but I didn't understand that until later. Mm -hmm. But there was something in her spirit and the way she handled herself that she was quite formidable. And she would show me pictures of herself in a trench coat with a big camera standing on the football field at the University of Illinois. And I would look at these pictures and I would think, wow, mom, that's really cool. You know, that's great. She also wanted to be a pilot. She wanted to take flying lessons. Amelia Earhart was spoken in hushed
1: terms. (laughs) She loved this woman so much. I was like, wow. Like a goddess. (laughs) Right.
0: I did not put it together until I had a career, until I grew up, that there was this side of her that was very ambitious and very trailblazing, and very, you know, sort of gender bending. That she wanted to be a reporter at the Chicago Sun Times. She wanted to be, you know, a, a a pilot, and it never occurred to me. In the 1940s, in the late '40s and in the '50s, when she was raising me, you know she, you know, she had these big aspirations. So I think that in her, her DNA is in me. She never had the opportunity to manifest her ambitious dreams. And I didn't really get that until I got older. And I realized how much she had given up. And that's a, it's, a, it's a very emotional for me because she married my father right out of school. Both of their parents were sick and, and dying. And so they got married right out of college and she got pregnant with me. And those were the days when a working mom, that those weren't the rules. Those were not the rules. My father was out earning a living and she stayed home and took care of the kids and so um it's actually heartbreaking to me on a lot of levels that she never had the opportunity to do those things that apparently were very much in her heart
1: Mm-hmm. And so, she and she almost invited you into her heart that way, pushing you onto these adventures, right? Well, she, and sharing those. Did she
0: didn't. Okay. So mm-hmm. a lot of my relationship with my mother was a lot of mixed messages. Okay. So it's like, I think it's great that you want to work and that you want to have a career, but really you should stay in Highland Park or stay in Chicago, you know, and you know, have some kids.
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) Bring them to the country club. Right. And and I just I just couldn't do it. So I came home from college and after my European adventure. And I started my career in Chicago. Okay, so I thought, okay, you know, I'll stay here, it's safe, they're here. You know, I kind of needed their support, but within a year or so I realized that I needed to be in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And As much as she loved the things I was accomplishing and the things that I was doing, she, I don't think, ever forgave me for leaving her. And that was very, very painful uh, for both of us because I needed to be me. I needed to go. I needed to be in the business and in the area of my passion and, and my heart. She's not much of a music person, my mother. (laughs) She couldn't sing and she wasn't really a fan per se, although she did love Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra, she, you know, she described (laughs) similar feelings as when the Beatles came to town.
1: Old blue eyes, yes. So, um,
0: you know, we just, my mom and I got caught in the 50s and the 60s and the radical change in America. That America was going through in the 60s okay yeah. so I grew up with a lot of music I grew up with the Beatles I grew up with the Ronettes and with Aretha and I mean this was so much part of my life that even when I went to college um, I switched my major from education to film and video communications they were totally confused they 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 had no idea they were like well, wait a minute. I thought you were, you know, you, you get an education degree. I mean, those were the years where when you went to college, your parents said stuff to you like your mother would say, you need something to fall back on. So <laughs> yes. go, go to, you know, in case your marriage doesn't work out or, or you don't get married or whatever the situation, you got to have something. So, you know, we thought, all right, so maybe I'll be an elementary school teacher. Oh, my God. Oh, boy, um, that's not you. Yeah, so I started <laughs> taking those classes in college, and I'm like, no, 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 not me, not Mm-mm. me. They didn't understand. I-, I was too busy in the film class being one of, I was the only woman in these classes, okay? Yeah. And that was where my heart was. I wanted to be a camera person. I wanted to be a director. I didn't quite know what a producer was, but, you know, that was where my my heart was. So when I moved back to Chicago, um, I actually was able to to find whatever music business jobs existed in Chicago in the 70s um, and then outgrew it within about four years. I pretty much accomplished everything I set out to do in Chicago and then really felt myself being pulled and drawn to Los
1: Angeles. Oh, I bet. Yeah. yeah.
0: So I knew that was where I had to be.
1: Your career is so fascinating. How did you do it? Like walk us through what it was like being the, I guess the only way I can see is like the only woman in the room and, and then charging forward and and being an innovator and the, the first to do so many cool things.
0: Okay. Well, I was very ambitious. And I knew that I couldn't sing or play an an instrument. So I knew early on that there was a business of the music business. Mm -hmm. And that was making deals, but I wasn't a lawyer. And it was marketing. Okay. So those were the two areas that you could get involved and still be completely part of the music business with artists. I got very lucky. I was in the right place at the right time. I had the knowledge of how to make film and how to make video. And I knew how to do that stuff. Whereas most people my age in those days, they they didn't know anything about that. But I did because I went to college and studied that. Mm -hmm. So when I came out to Los Angeles, I was very fortunate. I had a job with a big record producer who introduced me to all these top people at really high levels at the record companies. I had met a director who was shooting little videos. He was like shooting videotape. Okay, videotape then was like this thing, okay? So uh, he was shooting videos of, of just artists. And I thought, oh my God, I did that in college. I did that on my college TV station. I know how to do this this is so cool. I, I, you know, and then I'm looking around and I'm thinking, wait a minute, this isn't just shooting artists. This could be programming. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Kids are going to, they're going to love this. So I got involved with this director and met some people at the labels. And in 1983, I got a call from Warner brothers records asking me to go down to Florida to film uh, video to to, actually we shot it on film to film this 26 year old artist named prince so
1: I love this story I'm
0: like his name is prince okay that's it that's just just plain prince I mean you know in in those years it was like I'm like okay all right whatever so I fly down there and I'm told by his manager Don't talk to Prince. You don't talk to him unless he talks to you. I'm thinking, okay, that's just really, really weird. and, And I can't do my job. I have to be able to communicate with the artists so that I've got camera people, I've got crew, I've got a stage, I've got all this stuff going on. So I walked up to him and I kind of pulled him aside and I said, in order for me to do my job, I have to be able to talk to you. And so I need you to agree to talk to me so that we can we can do this together and I can give you what you want. So he looked up at me and he came up to my, my He's boots. He's tiny,
1: yes. <laughs> and he,
0: and he, looked, he looked at me and he was like, okay. And that was how we were able to proceed. And we filmed a couple of videos down in Florida, uh, most notably Little Red Corvette and I brought all the footage back to Los Angeles and we cut it together. And I brought it to the record company and they just flipped out because it was, you'd never seen an artist like that before. When yeah. he came out on the stage and he like slid across the stage. <laughs> like, yeah, right. He's like, Go. I was like, oh my God, this kid is just amazing. This is just incredible. So when I got home and we had cut everything together, Everybody wanted to see Prince. Who's this kid? Who's this kid, Prince? And I had the VHS. I had it. So I used that opportunity to go to every record company and show their marketing people what I had produced. And then I realized that I could start my own company because I had the contacts and I had the talent. And I and I I knew that I could do that. So it was like the right place at the right time. So Little Red Corvette launched Prince's career, wow. and Little Red Corvette launched my career.
1: Check that out. Yeah. How <laughs> cool is that? How was the other than you know this no talking thing? What was it like to just kind of create this new medium? What was it like to collaborate with an artist like that in this new way? What well, must have been it, fascinating.
0: I mean, I'm such a music fan, okay, that working with these artists was just, you know, just fantastic for me. It was incredible that I would be able to bring something to their career, okay, that I would be able to help them in some way, get their image out there and help refine their image. Because over the years, as music videos became, you know, very common, they became more marketing vehicles, okay, okay. Mm-hmm. And so I, on a business level, I had to not only manage production, but I had to manage the image of that artist based on what director I would put with that artist in order to create, you know, what the label and the artist wanted to achieve. And and, and it, because it was so incredible and MTV launched, you know, I was, like I said, I was the right place at the right time. Yeah. And I had, I had really good taste. I, I, I knew when somebody was a good director and I knew how to see really, how to discover really talented people. Okay. So I made it a mission to find all the young filmmakers in Los Angeles and in New York and in London and in Nashville, all these, these, these directors and filmmakers who needed a break because it was very hard to get into feature films, obviously, if you're in your 20s or 30s, okay? And it's also very difficult to break into the commercial business, really high-end commercials. So I had all the renegades. I had all the, the rebels and the, and the crazy people in, in Hollywood, but I wanted to give people a chance. I wanted to help people get their careers off the ground while I'm building my own
1: company. Amazing. And the thing that you talk about in becoming, becoming brave, and becoming all of these things is that it isn't easy. This wasn't an easy experience for you. There were uh, challenges no, along the way. I can not only, aside from just being a woman and being a pioneer, so walk through that. Like how, as an artist, do you stay committed to your creativity and to yourself and to your belief in yourself? Okay. Well,
0: in the music video, Milia. We, the women who ran my company, we all the producers in my company were women. Okay, awesome. the directors were all men. That was a long time ago. Okay, yeah, <laughs> so it's, it's different now. But the hardest thing about what we had to do was that I may have a creative vision for it, but really it's the director's vision. So, most of what we did was support the vision of the director okay Mm -hmm. now a really good producer helps that director with surrounding him with the best talent such as like a great cinematographer if a director is a little green you, you put them with a great cinematographer and together they learn and they teach each other so I'm like managing that and at the same time I'm managing a record label who's watching every penny and at the same time, I'm dealing with an artist and management who are always in a tugging pull back and forth between what they want and what they can afford. So it was very high stakes, yeah and one had to be very you had to you had to understand all aspects, like what what the label's priority was was the artist's priority was and what my priority was to not go over budget and mm-hmm. to deliver. To them something that will enhance their image and their business and, you know, their music.
1: And so then after 10 years, like, okay, all right, I have become the producer, the female producer, rock star. Then you decided you were done. I decided
0: that the business was running me Mm. and I wasn't running the business and it was crazy. And I had ambitious directors who, you know, I, (laughs) I always envisioned myself as like dropping, like they were like little birds chirping, you know, with their little mouths open. And I had to like constantly (laughs) fill their little mouths with money and jobs and all this stuff. It was a huge responsibility. So I thought, you know what? I want to do something beyond three minutes. I want to do something longer form, you know, and maybe I have a creative vision. Maybe I can bring my own vision instead of supporting the vision of a director. And so I decided sort of at the height of everything that I would, you know, I would walk away and and take with me the lessons that I had learned to create new things. The, you know, I mean, the the logical progression for someone like me would have been to be a big executive at a commercial production company. Right. Okay. And those people made a lot of money, but I did not want to shoot hamburgers and French fries <laughs> and fried chicken. And, you know, that just wasn't, that just didn't. Didn't speak to you. Just didn't speak to me.
1: Well, because it was also about the music.
0: Well, it was all about the
1: music. Yeah. It was, and it was, that all was about it. pop
0: culture and young people and, you yeah. know, the excitement of, of, of being that. So, the commercial business, although it would have been extremely lucrative, was not my thing. It didn't call me. So, I took big risks by leaving a a very big career in that area and then going off into new areas. Without taking a risk, you get nowhere. Don't grow. And, And I felt that I needed to grow in those moments. And I also felt that if I didn't make space in my life to meet a guy. Oh I mean I met plenty of guys. I mean there, were, there, there, there <laughs> are guys everywhere. But you know I I I wanted to I wanted to settle down. I wanted to get married. Yeah. And I was in my late 30s and I thought I, I gotta change some things here. Yeah. I really do. Or I'm or I'm not gonna be able to make that happen. I had met my husband. Joel Joel, on a a blind date, I was determined to try to create a work life for myself that would be inclusive of having a committed relationship. You know, and as if, if, you know, life, the way life rolls, I got a call from an executive at VH1 in New York, the network, and they were offering me uh, a head of production job. And I was like, oh my God, this is so great. Oh, I just, I, this would be just so fabulous. A network executive, this is right up my alley. This is like the next big step for me. And I thought to myself, if, if I do this, I'm, I, I could very well sacrifice my relationship. And I really thought long and hard about it. And I asked the woman who offered me the job if I could, can I do this job from L.A.? Mm -hmm. she's like no I'm afraid you can't I said all right well give me a day or so to think about it and I called her back and I said you know I really appreciate this offer and and it would be wonderful but if I leave Los Angeles I I leave a relationship and this is what I wanted for a while for a long time so I have to turn it down and that was a pivotal point for me where I had to choose love, basically, over my career. So that's what
1: I did. I love that you did that. Oh, thank you. Well, I, you know, I
0: waited a long time. So, I mean, I didn't get married till I was 43. Um, Joel and I dated for a while. He was separated and he needed to get divorced. But we had such a wonderful life. We uh, we were like, you know, Hollywood power couple. He's a he's a big literary agent. We were like all the Hollywood parties, you know, all the fun. I took him, you know, my crowd, and we went with his crowd. We traveled all over the world. We just had we just had a blast. We were having a wonderful time. And at that time, I had found myself a really interesting job at a brand new internet company. Nobody even knew what this was, right? Yeah. Uh, but we did. If if you're used to living on the cutting edge, if you're mm-hmm. used to being able to identify trends, okay, which that's what the music video business had taught me, that I, I I could see where things were going. I knew that the digital revolution was going to just change everything. So I need I wanted to get in there. I wanted to learn about it. And I want, so I took a, a really a wonderful high, high. Paying job at, um, at this new internet company yeah. and like four months after I started my job and I was loving it four months after I began that, um, I was diagnosed with breast cancer.
1: Yeah.
0: And for the first time in my life, I just felt like the rug was just pulled from underneath me. Yeah. I had no, I, I just for the first time in my life, I realized I wasn't invincible, okay. and this was a loss of innocence for me um, that was truly profound. Because okay. inside, I was still that little girl who loved music and was like partying and carrying on, and you know, all that stuff, but yeah. this just leveled me. So, I had the great fortune of working for a man who understood what was happening for me and he continued to pay me and my colleagues and coworkers accepted the fact that I could only do so much. I mean, I, I would, I would literally drag myself into the office while going through chemotherapy because I just needed to, I just need to be there. Yeah, Don't forget about me. And I'm here and I can still think, you know, I just, I'm just a yeah. mess. It was, it was just really difficult.
1: I it just, just
0: brought me to my knees. And um, I kept thinking that when chemo was over, when the chemotherapy was over, that I'm just going to just jump right back into work. I'm ready to go. I'm done with this cancer crap. I don't want to have anything to do with that anymore. Like a switch. I'm yeah, done. Like, Bye-bye. Okay. <laughs> well, it doesn't work like that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It just doesn't. So what I, what I didn't realize, but I soon thereafter did, was that this was a major shift in my life. Like just groundbreaking shift in who I was, what I thought about myself, and where I was headed and what I wanted to do with my life moving forward kept gnawing at me. It was like, okay, so you just survived this. Okay. So you can't go back to work until you get stronger. Uh, you know, just I just can't. I don't know who I am anymore. Um and I kept thinking that I wanted to do something else with my life, with what I have left of my life. So a year would go by and then the next year would go by and they want you to be cancer free for like four or five years. Mm -hmm. They want you. So it's like, you know, weekly and not weekly, monthly, you know, uh, going to the oncologist and getting tested and tons of doctors appointments. And I felt really confident that I was going to survive. And if I was going to survive, I wanted to do something else moving forward other than parties (laughs) and traveling around and, you know,
1: all of. Being in it.
0: (laughs) Being in it. Exactly.
1: (laughs) You were so in it. (laughs) That's
0: exactly right. Being in it. Because you know what? Being in it takes a lot of energy. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't creating any value in my life anymore. You'd seen it. I'd seen it, done it. So I started seeing, and by the way, by, by, by that time, by four years, I was back on my feet. I had taken my digital experience, my technological experience, and then brought that to the music business. So I became a digital strategist and producer for major artists who were just learning the digital world. Okay, so like 15, 20 years prior, they were learning the music video world. Well, now now they can be seen on multiple platforms, but nobody understood this at the record companies, but I did, I I did. did. So I went back to the record companies and I went back and started working with artists like Sting, who I spent two years with producing tons of content, traveling all over the world with him, and you know, creating his website and his new digital presence and webisodes. I mean, nobody was doing this. Right. No, I mean, this was, you know, again, cutting edge. A, a cutting edge, groundbreaking thing. So in the middle of all of this, I'm thinking to myself, okay, this is great. I can do this, and this is really fun. This was more fun than I've had in a really long time. But what am I gonna do with the rest of my life? Mm. And that's when Joel and I started talking about adopting a child. Wow. Because I thought to myself, I have learned so much. I have been so far. I have created, you know, wonderful fortune in my life. And I wanted to give it to a little child who had nothing. Mm. So we went down a lot of different paths trying to figure it out, but we'd run out of time. I mean, I was like 49 years old and we're trying to we're
1: 49
0: trying to, young. <laughs> we're to, yeah, uh, we're trying to figure this out. My husband actually said to me, you know what? Forget all this domestic adoption and surrogacy and all this other craziness that we were exploring. Because, you know, if you're looking to, to have a child and you can't biologically have a child, there are d- different paths you can take. Yeah, many. <laughs> depending, depending on what feels best to you. Well, none of it really felt best to us, really. And then my husband said, Beth, there are kids all over the world Mm -hmm. that are in orphanages and they have nothing. So that gave me the clarity to say, "Okay, that's where we're headed. And so through a lot of prayer and through a lot of paperwork and a lot of really good fortune, we adopted our daughter in 2002 so that was a major shift in my life being 50 years old and having a baby yeah. nine-month-old baby so and I you know all my friends I, I mean some of my friends most of my friends from high school were their kids were having kids they were becoming <laughs> grandparents and I'm like you know and I and I knew nothing about having a kid, nothing about I, I didn't even have a house plant that depended on me. Okay. (laughs) So, so I, you know, this was all new for me, but it was so joyous and so wonderful. And I must've had the confidence in myself to think, okay, you're going to raise a kid in your fifties and sixties. You know, if if you, if if you think of that, I mean, it's, it's exhausting. (laughs) Yes. It's basically exhausting, but, it was it was my determination. And I I felt that I had so much to give yeah. a little child. And so those years were just, they were amazing. I worked, I continued to work, I continued to work with music artists. And I thought that as she got older, it would be easier and I could work more and I could. I was so stupid. I had no, <laughs> please. I had no idea. She's like, so she's getting older, and I'm thinking, mm, yeah, you know, she kind of needs me. She needs me a lot, <laughs> and so I, you know, I stopped working totally crazy, full time, and tried to find opportunities where I could work, but be a a, a mom first.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay,
0: because a lot of people in Hollywood. Who have demanding careers and, and I'm not criticizing it. It just wasn't for me. It, you know, you can have a nanny, mm-hmm. but if you're going to come home at eight, nine o'clock at night and the nanny's been with your kid all day, then what, you know, what did you miss? Like what's, I don't, I believe me, I had a nanny the first couple of years. So I, I get right. that, but I didn't go through everything I went through and flying over to Taiwan and bringing this beautiful little girl back, you know, to just hand her off to a nanny and go back to work. I'm with you. So the blessing for me was that there wasn't anything that I hadn't done. There wasn't anything that was going to compete with being a mom. There wasn't a party or an event or a job that was gonna be more important than being a mom. For me, that was the right time in my life to do that. Yeah. Nothing would compete with my being a mom. And so for me to have this big life and this big career all these years, and then do that at 50, I just, you know, I kind of flipped it. I flipped the model, but I'm always a model flipper, so. You know, so anyway.
1: I love that. It's beautiful. And The past in motherhood is different for everybody, right? Exactly. There's Exactly. We all have different things that we want to accomplish before we kind of transition into that phase. I'm I'm with you 100%. Right. I love this. And I have to quote you here. A boomer raising a Zoomer, P.S. This required massive amounts of coffee, wine, and weed. And I laughed out loud. <laughs> this is very funny. Yeah. Coffee and coffee, <laughs> and wine, wine, and weed. Yeah. (laughs) Wine and weed. There was this beautiful moment that you shared with me with your mom in the hospital where I just sent chills to down my spine and into my bones where she stood by you in this rough, difficult moment.
0: You know, she always stood by me Mm
1: -hmm. in
0: every rough moment. We fought a lot. We 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 butt heads. I I wasn't her kind of <laughs> gal. You know what I'm saying? She loved me madly. She loved me, loved me, mad. but she was very strong, my mother, very strong-willed. Okay. Which was which was where I get some of that. Um I was going to the hospital. She flew in to Los Angeles uh, for my mastectomy. And she took me to Cedar Sinai. And do you remember the scene in Terms of Endearment? Yes, yes, thank you, thank you. Terms Shirley of McClain. Endearment. So, in that movie, when Deborah Winger has cancer and she needs pain meds mm-hmm. and she's not getting the pain meds, and Shirley McClain just goes full on ballistic and screaming and Okay, it's like one of my favorite, favorite scenes in the movie. So, I'm at Cedar Sinai, my mother brings me in. I'm standing in the the prep room where they they hook you up to everything and they get you ready and they you know the anesthesiologist is there and she's standing there holding my hand, and um, so they say to her, so everything's done and we're ready to go and I'm of course terrified, and they say to her, okay, um, it's time for you to now go back and you can wait in the waiting room. Uh, you're not allowed to go with her beyond those two double doors. And she just stands there. (laughs) She stands there. She didn't say anything. She, there's no way she wasn't going to follow me Mm. down that hallway. And I know, it makes me want to cry. And she just held my hand and she went right through those two double doors. She went right through them and nobody stopped her. And she just, and anesthesiologist. i kind of just, I just started to drift away and she never let go of my hand. It was, that's my mother. That was really my mom.
1: I love it. So beautiful. Yeah. Okay. To wrap up, I thought about you last night. Well, I've been thinking about you a lot since we first met. And I was like, how can we make this, this might be a little night show, Game ish, but I thought it would be kind of fun if you're up for it. If I say a name of someone that you've worked with and then you say the first word that comes to mind, oh would you be God. open to that? Um <laughs> yeah, sure. First of all, I'm gonna say Shirley McLean. Goddess. Barbara you- Streisand?
0: Big goddess. <laughs> Rod Stewart. <laughs> Crazy. Prince. Spectacular.
1: And I'm having a, a revival of her work because I just went to her concert a couple months ago. Alanis. Raw.
0: She's raw. Yeah, she's she's great.
1: Cindy Lauper. Bitch. <laughs> that didn't take me long, did it? No, it did not. And last but not least, your mom.
0: Warrior. Oh, I love it. Warrior, my mother. She was a warrior.
1: Beth Brode has lived a big, fabulous life filled with passions and callings. Seeking adventure, instilled in her by her mother, Beth found it. Something occurs to me when listening to Beth is that often believing in ourselves is the key to becoming, and that is the magic of life. Until next time, stay curious and be well.